0: Let's open up in our Bibles today to the book of Matthew, chapter 1. Let's begin reading at verse 18. We'll read down to the 25th verse. These verses are often just brought about or read primarily around the Christmas season because of its application, but they really should be looked at more frequently, we do here, for the uniqueness, and that's really a very light, not really effective word to use for this event so let's begin reading at Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily, privately. While he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. She shall bring forth a son, thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Jesus. Simple title to this message is The Unique Birth and Life of Jesus Christ. And in these verses here, as I just mentioned, when we ordinarily hear these verses read during the Christmas season, it seems to me that there aren't too many people who are in a church, maybe only during the holiday season, that appreciate the depth of what this is claiming, what this is saying. But before I get to that, the unique birth and life of Jesus Christ. I wanted to give you something here, politics. We may think that it's unique to America. Secondly, be unique to our time, that we cannot trust the politicians and the people who enact laws and then uh, execute laws over us. But I want to just read you some statements here. Throughout the ages, as the scriptures say, there is nothing new under the sun. For example, Aesop, of Aesop's fables, he said this, we hang petty thieves and appoint the great ones to public office. Plato said this, those who are too smart to engage in politics are punished by being governed by those who are dumber. (laughs) Plato wasn't actually saying that politics is wrong. He was trying to say, if you don't get involved in politics, you're going to get what you deserve. Even Khrushchev, Russian leader, So the politicians are the same all over. They promise to build a bridge even where there is no river. Author Irving Stone, in his book Clarence Darrow for the Defense, had this in the book. When I was a boy, I was told that anybody could become president. I'm beginning to believe it. Politicians are people who, when they see light at the end of the tunnel, go out and buy some more tunnel. It was John Quinton. Oscar Amerger said... Politics is the gentle art of getting votes from the poor and campaign funds from the rich by promising to protect each from the other. When Adelaide Stevenson was running for president in 1952, he said this, I offer my opponents a deal. If they stop telling lies about me, I will stop telling the truth about them. Mary Louise Guinan: a politician is a fellow who will lay down your life for his country. Charles de Gaulle, I have come to the conclusion that politics is too serious a matter to be left to the politicians." Doug Larson, who was a middle distance runner, won a couple of gold medals at the 1924 Olympics, said, "'Instead of giving a politician the keys to the city, it might be better to change the locks.'" And there was a play, 1776, wasn't that long ago, and there was a quote in there attributed to John Adams in the play, but John Adams never said this, but it's still worth hearing. What happens if a politician drowns in a river? That is pollution. What happens if all of them drown? That is solution. I've come to the conclusion that one useless man is ashamed, two are lawyers, and three or more are the government. Now, John Adams actually didn't say that, but that was in his play, 1776. Many of you probably have heard Mark Twain's quote, suppose you were an idiot, and suppose you were a member of Congress, but then I repeat myself. <laughs> Will Rogers, who is best remembered for saying, I never met a man I didn't like, said, I don't make jokes, I just watch the government and report the facts. (laughs) He also said a government which robs Peter to pay Paul can always depend on the support of Paul. Churchill said, I contend that for a nation to try and tax itself into prosperity is like a man standing in a bucket and trying to lift himself up by the handle. Then the Irish author George Bernard Shaw said, the problem we face today is that the people who work for a living are outnumbered by those who vote for a living. Now, Shaw was born in the late part of the 19th century. Churchill, of course, 19th century to the 20th century. And Will Rogers, again, 19th into the 20th. So these quotes are not new. Certainly go back to Plato and Aesop. And we're not looking at a unique uh, situation with respect to politics. But our Bible already told us there's nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. So I wanted to just state this. Almost everywhere I go on a daily basis, someone will engage me in a subject that has some connection to politics. I'm not unpolitical, as Plato seemed to intimate. But that's the danger. But I am apolitical. I have never liked, I've never liked the news, let alone politics. This seemed to me, as I reflected my own life and my own gifts and talents, it seemed to always be a kind of an intuitive sense that you could not really trust people in some of these offices, running for these offices, that they could actually fulfill what they're promising, that they were actually sincere about what they were promising, and so on. And what I want to do in reading these statements from the ages about politics and politicians is to connect it to Jesus Christ. He's not a politician, he never was. He didn't advocate politics, he never will. I am the light of the world. I am the salvation. I am the way, I am the truth, and so on. This is Jesus. Again, for me, I am not unpolitical. I vote, do my duty, and do whatever I can, but I have no confidence in man. Not a little, I have none. Or relatively none, anyway. I may be saying none is too extreme, but relatively little. I believe, and this is just my personal opinion, you can disagree, I believe we're being lied to on a regular basis. And I keep reiterating this because this seems to be what I'm facing when I speak to people. So we who are conservative in our politics, whatever your party may be, however you're registered to vote, we look at the left and it's always the left. But I'm sincerely stating my belief. I believe there's more problems now coming from people on our team. I truly do without going through all the details, my life consists of on almost a daily basis of something telling me what the government's trying to do to us, how they're trying to wipe out the population with control viruses, to uh, rights and on and on and on. And I'm speaking for myself, not for you, or at least not for you necessarily. I'm just, I'm weary of it. You see, from the time I received Christ as my savior, he's been my all in all. <laughs> I don't sing this song because it sounds good. In fact, I would refuse to sing a lot of songs that I didn't really mean what I was singing. I found myself reviewing my life that I often remembered songs not for the lyrics but for the musicality and never really listened to the lyrics until 50 years later. And I'm doing some review now on some of the songs I listened to and I can't believe the lyrics because I never listened to them. I sang them mindlessly, but I was always interested in the musicality. That's me. You've heard me quote the verse from Jeremiah, Cursed be the man, trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm. I'm going to go on the record of saying this. Whether it's left or right in our politics, if that is all that we have, and we don't have the principles of God, we don't have the word of God, it's not going to end well. Because flesh does not deliver us. Moses didn't deliver the people of God, God did. Moses was the agent, the apostle Paul, the same thing. Jesus is, and again, it's not a word that is very appropriate to the stature of Jesus, but he is unique among men. He's unique in humanity. And we see that right here. And again, I mentioned this. And so this coming week, Friday night here, we'll have our Christmas Eve service. And Christmas Easter, you know, people who ordinarily don't come to church services will come, which I always counted as a good thing, that they have the respect. But so many, many won't understand the implications of what we just read. That a woman, probably a teenager at the time, who had a reputation for godliness, pregnant. And her fiancé, Joseph, who is equally godly, is astonished. By the way, we see the godliness of Joseph even after he realizes his girlfriend, his fiancé, is pregnant. You know, many men would be so angry that his fiancé, his girlfriend, had relations with another man and became pregnant. He's not even willing to make her a public example and to put her in front of everybody and really caused her a great deal of pain and shame, but he was not willing to do that. He was going to put her away, but do it privately, whatever that would mean. It shows you the godliness of these people. But here, then he's visited in a dream and told not to do that, that what is happening here is supernatural. No matter how godly a person may be, this is a lot to believe. Because it's never happened before, it doesn't happen. It's not just unique. It's impossible. It's not ever happened before. It's not ever happened since. Yet, as we read here, this was done that a prophecy uttered hundreds of years earlier would be fulfilled. So that we would know who we are to look for. That we would know who we are to look to for our salvation. And I want to say this again, because as I mentioned some of these little sayings here about politics throughout the ages. That nothing, once again, is new under the sun. And so Plato and Aesop and all these other people here could figure out what the Bible talks about when we trust in limitations, even when someone means well. I mean, the hearts are really, truly on the right spot. Maybe the intelligence is there and experience and so on. Just basic intelligence would tell us that human beings, no matter how good they may be, are limited. That's not including the people who are dishonest. And we have plenty of them and history had plenty of them. There's nothing new. Keep this in mind. The only thing different about our generation is technology and population. Those are two big things. Technology probably even bigger than population. What we're able to do now that we haven't been able to do in recorded history. But still, that's the only difference. Man has never changed. Still the same. So I would caution you. I said I'm apolitical. I never said I'm unpolitical. I will do my duty every time it comes to go to the polls and vote for somebody. Honestly, when I move the letter or make a mark in the box or whatever is required of me, I never have the sense of this is going to do it. We're going to turn this around. But whenever I do have a sense or a hope that we're going to turn this around, it's always when I'm looking at God. Let me say something further. The words on the page, though they actually be the words of God, much like the finger of God writing commandments on tablets of stone, in the end did not affect the people to whom those laws were given, for they broke them all. Jesus would later say, if they had known what they were doing, they would not, well, actually the apostle would say, if they had known who they were killing, you know, putting on a Roman cross, they would not have killed the Lord of glory. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's an interesting statement by Jesus, but we won't go any further with that one. It's just the fact that people can be, they can belong to a group called the church, they can belong to a group of people called Israel, and still not know God. Men have always looked for answers in men. They look for answers in their military. They look for answers in their politics. They look for answers in all types of things that pertain to flesh and blood. And all of that has its limitations. When we look to God, there are no limitations, none whatsoever. I was thinking to myself just yesterday, related to some event, some something. The Antichrist cannot be revealed until there's a falling away first, and I'm convinced, and I know many others are, I'm convinced we're now in the middle of that. And what you don't hear, you don't hear people saying, I'm rejecting Christ. Never. You just never really hear that. If you do, it's rare. What you hear people do is make excuses. Everything from my stomach hurts, to I'm busy, to what seems to be legitimate causes and reasons for the broken fellowship in a church. The lack of Bible reading and prayer and the pursuit of godliness and seems to be all legitimate. When we come to Jesus, he breaks all that legitimacy and says, if a man does not hate his father and mother, brother, sister, husband, wife, children, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And we know when we read on the life of Jesus, there were points but those that were following him only followed him to a point. Until then, as we use the expression, the rubber really met the road. When the convenience of serving Christ and the convenience of prayer and the convenience of reading the Bible becomes arduous and it becomes difficult because there's so much happening, stress and problems, I will submit to you that this is when we find out who is truly a Christian. I do believe the time in which we live is going to press the way grapes are pressed to find out who is truly a Christian. We read again uh, the great wedding, a parable of Jesus, that so many were invited, and one by one, and this is the word the Bible uses here in our King James Version, one by one they began to make excuse. I just purchased some land. I'd like to go, but I got to go check out my land. I just got engaged. You know, my fiance, you know her, she wants to go out. And the Bible uses the word excuse. Then another parable, Jesus talks about the pearl of great price. A man goes into a field and he finds this very precious pearl. He goes out and buys the whole land. The idea being that it's not just that pearl, but there's probably more. This is true Christianity. Obviously, it's not the hyperbolic expression that Jesus employed, that we don't hate our father, mother, brother, sister. He wasn't saying that. He was given the hyperbolic example, using hyperbole, to point out to us that this is the type of commitment that Jesus is worthy of, and so many are missing this. So what do they look for? Petty thieves who we appoint to greater offices in public service, or to whomever they look for. And in the end, as the preacher said in the Ecclesiastes, it's all vanity, vanity of vanity. Let me say something further. We are not managing time as much as we are managing energy, meaning you can read one of these dress for success books. There's plenty of them out there. They say you got to have goals and they tell you how to make goals and write goals and planning and execution. And so you can have 12 goals that will be accomplished in this one day. And then you realize that by, well, one o'clock in the afternoon, after pursuing six of those goals, you're running out of energy. And as we get older, for those of us who are getting older, the energy is less and less. So we're not managing time as much as we're managing energy. How much energy do you have? What are you spending your time on? Don't waste your time. It's your life you're talking about. And again, for those of us here that are older, how much time do you have left? Energy. You're managing energy. There's only so much time left. There's only so much energy left. What are you spending it on? If in your heart of hearts you truly believe that Jesus is really the most important thing, it shows in your behavior. It shows in what you put first. The first thing I do and I've always done all my life is read the Bible in the morning. Someone told me once, well, I'm a night person. Okay, fine. But maybe putting, just as an exercise, putting God very first in the morning would be good. Then you could do your major reading later if you're a night owl. I have a habit some of you know, I don't allow anything to be placed on top of a Bible. Now, Some people sometimes do it unwittingly, and as soon as they're there, I just move it right off. I will not allow anything placed outside of a Bible, and uh, I won't say never, but it's very rare to find something tucked inside my Bible. It's my way of showing respect to God. It's my way of showing respect to the many people who actually gave their lives so we could have this book. I started out by saying that so many people don't appreciate the depth of this statement here. But let me go further in saying that many who profess Christ don't understand the depth of what this book is actually saying. And that leads us to the cross, and come springtime we'll be back at Good Friday. But this season here now, we celebrate the birth of Christ, and we see mangers, which I'm not against any of these things myself personally. I actually like lights on houses and stuff. I like the manger scenes and all that, but that's as far as their thought process goes. This is a young woman here who we're going to read in just a moment is being told first by an angel, Gabriel, that she's going to be pregnant. And her question to Gabriel is, how can I become pregnant? I've never known a man. I've never had relationships with a man. How's this going to happen? And the angel Gabriel tells Mary, you will be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, over supernaturally impregnated. And then we read here in Matthew chapter 1 that Joseph is told, don't worry about this. This is the doing of God himself. So let's look at these verses now in Luke chapter 1 and see if we can begin to get an appreciation or I should say maybe for those of you who already got the sense of what's being stated here, we can enlarge upon that entry in your heart. In Luke chapter 1, as I mentioned, the angel Gabriel appears to this same Mary we read about in Matthew chapter 1. Verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? Be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. You talk about great faith. She's not pregnant. She's being told that she's going to become pregnant. That this is going to happen in a supernatural way that has never happened before in history. From the creation of Adam, and we may even mention Eve, ribbed from his side, to this moment and then beyond to this moment in history where we are right now. This has never happened. It's impossible. Yet the scripture says here, verse 37, With God nothing shall be impossible. So we have to, first of all, appreciate, when we talk about Jesus, just who we're talking about. He's not merely Jesus the teacher, nor is he merely Jesus the prophet. Jeremiah had a mother and a father, and so did Isaiah. But Jesus, no. Emmanuel, God with us. And that's not a hyperbolic expression. That is an actual announcement of the truth. He walked amongst us. God walked amongst us. These things I want to share with you can, though people read them, of course, I just mentioned, they'll be reading them this week in their readings, their devotions, the services they go to in Christian churches, but never get the full impact that we're talking about on using the word unique, unique individual in history who deserves a whole lot more than a casual commitment. But that is not something any preacher can give to you, and that is not something that anyone who truly knows the Lord can give to you. It's something you have for yourself. It's just one of those areas where God alone can impart that knowledge to an individual. And you can hear me say words, and you can read those words off the page of the Bible. But then hear David, what he says, Open thou mine eyes, that I might behold wondrous things out of thy law. He could read them with his eyes, but he was talking about another pair of eyes. The eyes of the Spirit. On the road to Emmaus two disciples are talking to each other about the events of Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus comes alongside. They don't recognize him. A conversation ensues. What are you talking about? And they're saying, well, haven't you heard all the details of what's going on here? And then eventually it says, and he opened their eyes. Now, these are students of the scripture. Jesus opened their eyes to see what they had always seen with the physical eyes, but evidently didn't know with the spiritual eyes. That's something only the Holy Spirit can do. Doesn't matter what church you attend. Doesn't matter who the personality is, how erudite they are, educated, godly, doesn't matter. Only the Holy Spirit can impart the knowledge to you or to anyone of these things. But Jesus is not the average human being. Let me say this to you, and I don't want to really be insulting, but make him out that way. I wish that you would take time and write down how you spend your time. And with respect to politics, see how much time you're actually spending watching television shows, interviews between this one and that one. and my view of this as well, doesn't matter left or right. They always pick two people who they know are gonna be arguing. They're gonna be losing their temper and what this does if you have anxiety and depression and all of this, is tapping into these things. Again, this is what I'm hearing a lot and honestly, I'm gonna have to start telling people, I don't wanna talk about this, please. You wanna talk about Jesus, I've got time. I don't want to hear about these things. I really don't. Because it's everywhere I go. Why? Because people are looking at other people who are not unique. They're average. I don't care if your IQ is 230. You're still average. Not in IQ. But in every other respect, you're average. You catch the common cold. You need sleep. you got to eat. You're average. Jesus is not. He's unique. And what I'm saying here is that if you're going to spend so much time examining somebody's life, the one that you want to really study is Jesus. Because he's unique in history. He's God come in the flesh. The only begotten of the Father. We read that in John 3. Monogenes is the Greek word only begotten. We have been begotten by the Spirit of God, but we're average men and women. We're just human beings. Jesus is 100% human, but he's also 100% God. Common sense, look, let me say it this way. If you really believe that, you say, oh, Pastor, I really believe that. Then common sense would say that your behavior, the way you schedule your time for your reading, will reflect that. You're going to study more about the person who is God, come in the flesh, and remember that Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, and then everything that belongs to Jesus. More than you study our Russian bots and communist Chinese bots on my Facebook page. This is what I listen to all week long. And so I try to turn the conversation to Jesus, but it doesn't always work. People are so angry. And forgive me for being so blunt when I say this, because this will be insulting. It's so incredibly stupid that they can't figure out that this is going nowhere. But Jesus is taking us somewhere in this life and certainly in the next, because he's God come in the flesh, and he's unique. I always like to remind you of this from time to time so that you kind of get a picture and I've done this many times over the year, borrowing from the work of Dr. Peter Stoner, mathematician who happened to be a Christian as well, who took some of his students and began to work out the statistical probability of Jesus fulfilling modestly just eight prophecies. So, now a word about prophecy. So, we flip back here, doesn't much matter where we go. We're going back hundreds of years, and here a little, and there a little. And then again here, then again here, scripture after scripture. Progressively, God is revealing to men what the Savior of the world would be like when mentioned first mentioned in Genesis 3.15, so that you would know him. So that there be no mistake that this is the one. Jesus said, I have come in my Father's name and you don't believe me. Another will come in his own name and you'll believe him. Now I'm using the word stupidity, but it's a lack of knowledge. It has to be that we don't appreciate. People don't appreciate And so they click on the television, and just all amped up about what they're going to do and what people are going to (laughs) do. Our Jesus said, don't worry about what you're going to eat. He says, you know, consider the birds. They don't plant anything, and they don't reap anything, and they don't put anything in barns, but your Heavenly Father feeds them. That's God speaking. And he says, now, don't be anxious about what you're going to wear. Consider the lilies of the field. And now, of course, when we have these massive microscopes, we can look in and see this incredible design. I'm sure that you've seen some of this. And Jesus would say that not even Solomon in all of his glory was arrayed like one of those flowers, and they're burnt in a day, maybe a little bit more, and then they're cast into a furnace, and they're gone. And you, he says, you're worth more than birds, and you're worth more than flowers. Boy, and that's, you know, I want to say, I'll use the word advice. That's really good advice. But the average Christian doesn't take it. They'll nod their head, say amen, or whatever they do, and they'll sit in front of that television set and be right in the midst of that argument. It's not for me. Peter Stoner, he came up with this statistics of pro- and probability of Jesus fulfilling prophecies, many of them, but we we'll just take eight, which he did in the beginning. And he had his students and they assigned numbers to what's the probability that he was born in Bethlehem. Maybe that was one in a hundred. What was the probability of him coming from Nazareth and so on, they took eight prophecies. And just those prophecies alone, which they gave some random numbers to, like one in a hundred, one in a thousand, one in 50, they actually were conservative in their estimations. Well, the number that they came up with just eight prophecies was 10 to the 17th power. That's 10 with 17 zeros behind it, which when worked out into an illustration, as I've shared with you over the years, if you took a silver dollar and you had 10 to the 17th power worth of silver dollars, it would cover the state of Texas, which if you've ever taken Texas and just placed it over the rest of the United States, you'll see how massive it is. It's massive we we'll cover the state of Texas in silver dollars three feet high. And if you had one of those silver dollars and you just touched it with, let's say, a little spot of red nail polish and threw it indiscriminately wherever, blindfold a man, put him at the borders of Texas, wherever you want, and tell him he can walk in any direction as long as he wants, shuffling through all these silver dollars. And when he feels lucky, you reach down, one on the top, three silver dollars down, 40 down, whatever it was, And pick it, and there's the one that has that one red mark. The probability of that man being able to do that is the same as Jesus fulfilling eight prophecies of the Old Testament just by chance. But Alfred Edersheim, the Jewish convert to Christianity, was a biblical scholar. He estimates the numbers of prophecies fulfilled by Jesus was 365. Most estimates land in the area of about 300 prophecies. But even if you take 47 prophecies that he would be crucified, nailed to a cross, born of a virgin, and all of these things. Which, how do you even put a number on born of a virgin? The numbers become so large that your mind and your brain cannot even entertain but one thought. There's no way that this could have happened by chance or luck. But these events is the proof. God wrote this book. So I submit to you, again, as a practical application, you know that I read a lot of books. I read a lot of secular books, but it's always with one thought in mind. How does it apply to this? Therefore, what book do you want to concentrate on? And if Jesus says, "Take no anxious thought about tomorrow." Sufficient for the day is the evil thereof. And then we sing this song been written some time ago, "One day at a time, dear Jesus, one day at a time." Which interesting was advice given by the Roman philosopher, stoic philosopher Seneca. Said the same thing. He said, "You know, just you—you you, you live a day, you finish it, and then the next day you start all over again, and therefore you begin life all over again." It's actually wisdom which we can find in so many philosophers, but they're all codified in one book—the one that God wrote. And then, of course, He adds a whole lot more that no one else could have, because it's revelation. He's revealing to us. You'll never know the frustrations of being a pastor. I mean, there's times when you want to do as the Jews had during the rebuilding of the temple, when just after 70 years of judgment, they had just been delivered from 70 years of judgment. They were already going back and sinning against the Lord. The temple was barely completed. Ezra comes along and he starts grabbing men by their beard. And if you've never had anybody tug on your beard, you won't know. There's something called righteous anger. It's very minimal. You know, it should be you know, used with a modicum of energy very sparingly. He was pulling them by their beards. He says, we just got judged for 70 years. We just got back in the land, and you're already sinning against God. So he prays, and he makes an appeal, and they rectify the situation. But that's the condition and nature of man. And before we project this onto everybody else, including the Jews, how about we look at ourselves? How fast can you forget the things you've learned in Christ? For any reason, including what's on television this afternoon, that you're excited about because whatever, or something that you got planned. How fast can we forget what God has done? Let me say something else to you. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him. You know, I mean, not all of them, but the preacher on TV, he's out for other things. Whether it's the applause of men or to build a big stadium, then it's all, of course, said for the glory of God. And I can't say that every preacher is disingenuous in that, but from my point of view, I see more of an accommodation so that they will keep coming than the type of message Jesus preached. When he said, pick up your cross and follow me, that was a very vivid image in the minds of those under the iron boot of the Roman government. The cross. What do you mean the cross? Isn't this about breathing deep and enjoying the scenery and increasing our IQ? And Jesus said, no, that's not the way. That's not the way. I'm the way, but that's not the way. It's a death to self. It's a self-denial. That's the way. And that has always been the way. And it will continue to be the way. And it's in that self-denial that God gives, at least in my experience, the way I would explain it, these little nuggets of wisdom along the way. That you know, that you know, that you know, that you know. These words are true. And again, that can't be given to anybody just in a sermon, in a message. But when you have it inside you, nothing can shake it. But I propose to you to be careful. Because we all have a tendency to forget. And we have a tendency to forget quickly. I mean quickly, the goodness of God, the greatness of God. Or, on the other end, those measures of discipline that God initiated in our lives that were either very uncomfortable or very painful or both. And that's not lessons that you want to forget, one or the other. You want to remember them because this is the way you get true wisdom. Trial and error, you learn from the error, and you say to yourself, won't do it that way again, yet we do the same thing again. Now Why is that? Well, we don't want the pain, so it must be that we simply forgot And how do we forget? We're not paying attention. Every kid that's been coached by anybody, when he's missing up at the plate, is always told one thing. Coach, why am I missing the ball? Why do receivers drop passes? It's always the same thing, with some exceptions. There's a fundamental rule. You took your eye off the ball. A man who can see that the goal, there's nobody in front of him, and the pass is right there at the last minute. He starts looking ahead, you don't have the ball yet. Boom, drops the pass. Well, let me suggest to you that when it comes to Jesus, you don't want to drop the ball. Not in this age. When God promises us such great peace, such great power, you have to be able to appreciate that this is not given to anybody and everybody. Didn't God say, I will blot out whom I will blot out, and I will save whom I will save? That's the prerogative of God. Not of you, not of me, not of the preacher, the denomination, the deacon board, the elders. It's not our prerogative. It's the prerogative of God to say, him I'm blotting out, you I'm saving. When we truly understand these things, there comes a tremendous appreciation for what we have. And we are a little bit more careful of not repeating the mistakes of the past, our own mistakes. We are a little more careful about doing the things that are bringing us great reward. I've observed in business, I've observed in a few organizations I've been involved in, That the thing that brought them the popularity or the group is really enjoying it, they always feel some need to improve it. Let's try this and let's add this. I've been associated with groups that do that. In my own opinion, they have failed to recognize that what brought people here was this behavior or this activity. But there's always a chance or there's always a temptation rather for people to amend it. And that's exactly what has happened over the years with this book. Jesus excoriated the scribes and the Pharisees. He said, you keep adding to the word and adding to the word. Of course, they were subtracting as well. And both, God said, don't do it. Don't subtract. Don't add. Leave it alone. And he says it in more than one place throughout the Bible. Leave it alone. So I figure for me, I think I'll just leave it alone. I'll let it say what it says. I've made up my mind whom I believed and what I believe. And I'll have to leave it up to others to do the same what they will believe, and whom they will believe. Because we are fulfilling Bible prophecy at a very rapid rate. Again, everywhere I go, and this is actually a conversation that I gravitate to when people say, you know, we've had more high winds this year than ever before in recorded history. Hmm. Have you read Matthew chapter 24? on The earthquakes and pestilences. I mean, are these things bypassing us? Is it business as usual? It is for quite a lot of people. A question to you. Now this is... Christmas season, Friday night, you know, it's still Christmas Eve. Should I have prepared a message that was more like rah-rah? Or should I just preach Jesus? Preach Jesus. Well, I'm glad you feel that way because I do it anyway. (laughs) It was a rhetorical question. I preach the way I pray. There's an intuitive sense, even coming out the door to this pulpit, there's an intuitive sense for this message to turn a bit. Not all of what I meditated on the night before is to turn that message a bit. Jesus is unique in his birth. It was a young virgin who all of a sudden is pregnant. She had a hard time believing that it was going to happen. And Joseph had a hard time believing that it did happen. Because let's face it, if you took the most godly person in a youth group in any place in the land who walks into the youth meeting and she's pregnant and she says, God did this. Well, who would believe her? The answer is no one, because it doesn't happen like that ever except in one case. Yeah. And if we go through the prophecies, which were not today, that God, I will say, he labored to tell all of us, not just the Jews, but to tell all of us, this is how you'll know this is the one. Think of this. No one prophesied about your birth. Your parents probably had to debate for some time, in the ordinary sense, especially today, what they were going to name you. No one knew the exact day of your birth, the month, maybe, you know, idea, and The city you were going to be born in, well, okay, well, you know, but you had control over none of those things. You had control over none of those things. You didn't have any control. One day you were just born, and you realize, I'm here, you don't know what's going on. In my case, father and mother are calling me Raymond, which I gathered after a while. This is my name. I didn't have anything to do with that. My height, the color of my eyes, everything about me could not have been engineered by me. And we find the same thing with Jesus. He couldn't have had any responsibility in the city in which he was born, Bethlehem, the city in which he was raised, Nazareth, the fact that his mother was impregnated by the Holy Spirit. And we go on and on and on through so many statements here in the Old Testament, particularly, and we see that this man we call Jesus, or that is called Jesus, had no control over these things, yet he fulfilled them. And you may sometimes just want to take all the prophecies, or there's 47 you know, 47 or so, the major ones, you know, and assign your own statistic probability, multiply them together, and find out what you get, 10 to what power? 10 to the 105th power? 10 followed by 105 zeros? There's one chance in 10 to the 105th power that this thing just happened was just sheer luck? We know, and I shared this a little bit in length last week, our cosmologist and Everybody, really. I mean, science, they're always telling us how precise things are and how you know, magnificent things are, and on and on. So I know that nothing that's happening in the universe is by accident. And I'm not here by accident. Neither are you. When God said to me, Jesus said to me, You must be born again, I can't fully explain this, but I knew that this was what I needed to do. I just knew it. It wasn't like reading Epictetus or Seneca, or it wasn't like reading a philosopher. Was well, something different, something intuitive, something that was given to me as it was for you by the Holy Spirit. And there's something here that we ought to rejoice about. The reason that we're not going to walk away from Jesus is because we know the same thing, because we say, where can we go? Yeah, let me say this to you. So you want to go back to where you were when Jesus first met you? You want to go back there? You see, because the brain, neurology has discovered this, the brain has a way of washing away the unpleasantness of the past. So we don't fully remember just how awful things were in the past. So you go back to those good times you had with your friends. Those good times, boy, they were good times. But What I try to do when I think about that is I try to think about everything else that went with it. How lonely I was, how depressed I was, how anxious I was and fearful I was. Then all of a sudden, the memory becomes much more accurate. Somebody mentioned to me just recently about life. And I said to them, if the path I was on years ago was so good, I wouldn't have become a Christian. But I was always searching. God, what's life about? What's the meaning? What is it? And he showed me. He said to Abraham, and he says to you, I'm your reward. And I'm your shield. Honestly, I laugh when I hear people talk about how we're going to build this and we're going to protect ourselves. We have a virus creeping through right now that you can't see it. And it's just going through, and all of a sudden, bing, boom, who's getting sick and who's dead. We're going to protect ourselves? Unless the Lord keeps the city, the watchman wakes in vain. Unless God protects us, it's going down into a sinkhole. And that's what this book says. The unique birth and the unique life. Don't don't forget that he healed thousands of people sick with impossible-to-cure diseases like quadriplegic. He dispossessed demons out of people. With a word. So much so that they would even say, we know who you are. And the scriptures give record that devils, in some respects, know more about Jesus than professing Christians. Have you come to torment us before the time? They knew it. They know their destiny. They know their destiny. James writes to us and he says, you believe in God? Fine. The devils believe they tremble. When they saw Jesus, they said, have you come to torment us before the time? They even know the time, apparently because it was before the time. And then we, who are created in God's image, don't always appreciate who we have. And again, I want to just say this, no man can give this to you. Peter comes to Jesus and he asks the whole group, right, the disciples, the apostles, who does everybody say that I am? Some say you're Jeremiah and some say you're one of the prophets and then he gets specific. He says to Peter, who do you say that I am? You, who do you say? He said, you're the Messiah, you're the son of God. Jesus said to him, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. It wasn't a rabbi. It wasn't your teachers in years past in your rabbinical school or in Sunday school. My father revealed this to you. You know, how blessed, how blessed can we be that God, for whatever his reason was, selected you, me, and revealed himself to us, revealed. Jesus said, no man can come to me except the father draws him. So a person can go to the Bible and read it and get nothing out of it and somebody else, the people of low estate, like you and me, we're reading and we're getting it because that's a gift of God. I assume you're gonna get something for Christmas. I always enjoy giving and receiving gifts. I always enjoy Christmas season, I really do. But when you think, and listen, this is where you can't be superficial anymore. It can't just be, say, oh, you got the gift of eternal life. Oh, that's great. When you really know that you have it, you're not afraid to live anymore. Not only that, but your worldview, it says, This is going to pass. More so, God predicted this was going to happen. He already told us this. He told us this. This is how the last days are going to be. So when I'm feeling discouraged, which is quite frequently, I encourage myself in the Lord by saying, okay, well, this is what God said. But I'm not going to amend this book to make people happy. They're on their own. There's plenty of preachers that will accommodate people and say, hey, come on over here. And what is it you want to hear? I want to hear one about money. Next week, it's all for you. Make sure you give the money. You know, and you go on and on. God does not accommodate us. He says, this is what it is. Here it is. Here's the reality. Here's the truth. Here's the, the whole program. If we accept it, we become stable people. We become people who can endure the storms. We go through adversity, yeah. But then again, we become people who, in the end, are still standing. At the end of the adversity. I'm going to quote from Seneca again. He said, the bravest sight is to see a great man struggling against adversity. Do you really want to read a book about, I had it easy all my life, middle of my life was easy, and it ended easy. It was all given to me. It's not interesting. Or do you like to read or hear a motivational quote or whatever it is about someone who had adversity after adversity after adversity and trial after trial, like the Apostle Paul as one instance, but conquered and conquered. This is the uniqueness of having the gift of Christ inside of us. Eternal life is not earned, but given freely. And that's what we have. And I'll say this in conclusion. Every week, I shouldn't say every week. Every week I could, but there's been many weeks, you know. How many of you are feeling stressed? Everybody' hand goes up. How many of you got problems? Every hand goes up. We, I didn't say you, we all do, all of us. What keeps us and gives us the ability to stay stable and to not be moved is knowing who Christ is and what he's given to us and what he gives to us. This is the uniqueness of our Jesus not a philosopher, the son of God. The gift that you have is the gift of eternal life, the gift of the promise that if you die before Christ returns, you will be raised again. You will never die. And then, using that for an introduction, you could take it from there. One last thing, the economy. Another subject I'm sick of hearing. Every day I get a report from the stock market, just like I guess you do, Stocks are up, stocks are down, stocks are up. They rally for this, they rally for that. And honestly, I really don't care. It's the way human beings are. If I was in business, where I was uh, a financial advisor, I'd have to have some amount of care, but even after uh, (laughs) my clients left the office, I'd say, I got Christ, who has promised to supply all of my needs. All means all. It means all. Doesn't mean all my greed, but all my need. Anything I need, anything you need in this world will be supplied by Christ. So before we even go to eternity or so to speak, go to heaven, we have enough right now to enjoy in your trials Christ the healer, Christ the deliverer, Christ the protector, greater is he that is in you, and on and on and on. What else could you ask for? I had a young man share with me just yesterday. He followed my advice, an associate of his not living so well he said, you know, I'm trying to help him, but he said, I remember what you told me, but I'm doing it from a distance. I'm not letting him take me down. That's real good advice. If you have other Christians with Bibles in their hands that you could look at and say, I'm not saying being critical of them, do not do that. Just make sure you're not going in the same direction they're going. You read, you pray, you be in fellowship. God will take care of the rest. Father, we thank you this morning. We bless you, for you are certainly great and greatly to be praised. I am just a man, and I cannot impart to, to people the revelation of the wisdom that's in this book. I could just utter the words written, but I have no power to make it a reality. That's in your hands, Father. And I ask you today, whether there be people sitting here, watching by live stream, listening by way of radio, that you would give the anointing to understand what's written in this book, the Bible. Fill them, touch them, strengthen them, reveal who you are and all of our troubles, which may not go away, we will be able to endure much more satisfactorily because we have you, and you cannot fail. Cannot fail. You're God. Help us during this Christmas season, Lord, to appreciate what we have and not keep accepting what we don't have. And for all, how can I express this in my heart, God? Please help professing Christians to get their eyes off of man. And put their eyes on you and while we here in america are not going to be unpolitical let us not exchange the glory of god for the empty promises of men and their vanity god we pray we petition you today pour out your spirit on america and have mercy on us we don't deserve your mercy we never did from the beginning but we're asking you god have mercy on us so that we don't have to see more of the encroaching judgment which we're already seeing have mercy on us. Give us a third great awakening. Awaken the church, first of all. And so many of these clever preachers, maybe they don't know they're accommodating people, Help them to stop the accommodation just simply preach the gospel. That's all in your hands. Bring a revival to the church, a revival to our Bible colleges and seminaries, yes, so in our churches, in our pulpits. Then out through the land to all people, the high and the low and everybody, bring them the good news that the angels brought. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to men. We give you praise, and we give you glory, both now and forever. Father, we thank you for another time of the Lord's Day. I ask you, God, I ask you today to bless all of my brothers, sisters in Christ, and friends. Fill them with your spirit. Help us, God, to stay true to the end and celebrate the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. His life, death, resurrection, and the promise, I will come again. We bless you for these things today. Jesus' mighty name. Can you say amen? Amen.